Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Moore, one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, if you're new here, I've been visiting for a little while. Love that opportunity after the service. We're glad you're here. If you have been with us, you know we are in a series uh, looking at the life of Abraham. And we have come to chapters 18 and 19. And last week we looked at the full story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this morning we will look at... uh, um, uh, particular story inside that story that happens uh, with the, uh, the intercession between Abraham uh, and God for Sodom. So with that, if you'll turn to Genesis 18, and I'll begin reading in verse 22 to verse 33. That's Genesis 18, verses 22 to 33. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. That's the angel men. Uh, But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death, death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Verse 27. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning, and we pray that you would do a miracle. And by a miracle, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not see and hear, that you would soften our hearts. Would you do this for your glory? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, the question for this morning, um, much like last week, we looked at a question to begin our time and the question for this morning is what does grace do to you? Last week we looked at what mercy does to you. <clears throat> we, said, we said that mercy uh, should make us look at God and look at scripture, look at others and sort of have this uh, sense of why me? Why spare me? Because mercy is you not getting what you deserve. But grace is a little different. It's you getting what it is that you do not deserve. And so my question for us this morning is, what does that do to you? We kind of looked at this illustration of, I think I shared a story that the fifth and sixth graders were really interested in talking about it. 
uh, small groups last Sunday about me getting a speeding ticket, 17, and having to go before the judge and that whole experience. And, uh, and that mercy was this moment where the judge, I pleaded guilty, but this, this judge looked at me and said, uh, you know, I'll give you a warning. I will not bring the judgment, the full judgment of the fine on you. That's mercy. Meaning I did not get what I deserve. And I, and I, and I think I threw in there at some point, if, if at that point he were to give you or give me $200, that would be grace. That would be not only withholding mercy, withholding something I deserve, but he would give me something that I did not deserve. What does grace do to you? And to get at that question, it depends on two things. What am I actually getting and what is the cost? And just to kind of carry this illustration a little further, I'm going to choose Bill Gates because he's got a lot of money. And so this will work. If Bill Gates is my judge and he decides to give me $200 of his own money, I appreciate that. But what is that really costing him? I could bump that up a little bit. He'd be fine, right? It doesn't do much to me. At the same time, if Bill Gates were in my seat before the judge and the judge were to give him $200, I'm sure Bill would appreciate that. But what does that really do to him? Because what's $200 when Bill Gates has X amount of dollars in his bank? What is he really getting? What's the point? Grace, friends, is always good. But is it amazing? Grace to us... Well, probably always, it should always be good to us, but that's not really what scripture is after. Is it amazing to you? And the only way that it becomes amazing to you is you see what you're actually getting, which you don't deserve, and you see the cost of that. And when we enter into those two things about grace, we then can enter into the question of what does it really do to us? We know what, we know what grace does for us. Reformation Sunday, it saves us. Hallelujah. We love that. What does it then do to you? And this has everything to do with our series, as we have called it, Grace as Mission. And that's what I want us to see this morning, that grace does these things to us and it prepares us for mission. And to get at that, I want to look at these two points in your handout. The dilemma Abraham faces as he intercedes here, the dilemma, and then I want us to see the principle that he learns as he intercedes. So the dilemma and then the principle. Let's take those in that order, the dilemma that Abraham faces as he intercedes. The, the, the dilemma is essentially this. Are we righteous on our own account? Another way to phrase that is, are we innocent? Is our record all we have to go on? This is the dilemma that Abraham enters into as he intercedes for Sodom. Where do we see that? Let's start at the beginning here. What is happening here? As the two angel men, remember that's my own term, feel free to disagree with that, but that's what I I see that as. As the two angel men go to inspect Sodom, the Lord stays, and in verse 22, he has this sort of invitation for Abraham to enter into dialogue with him. This has never happened, this hasn't happened yet in Scripture. And he's inviting them to enter into this dialogue about the things that he has just said to Abraham. Just before this, God says to Abraham, shall we hide or shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That's a weird way to say what we probably have experienced if we've talked to a friend who, you know, a friend sitting at the other side of the table from us. And it's just, boy, there's just a lot going on. I I don't know if I I should tell you what I'm about to tell you. Or you've had a friend say that. And of course, by them doing that, not only is that frustrating because you're definitely going to tell me now. But really what they're saying is. 
I trust you enough to say that, and I trust you enough to tell you what I'm about to tell you. It's an invitation to sort of like to come close and, and to be a part of this conversation. And that's really what the language is saying here as God says, shall I hide from Abraham? And it is an invitation for him to come in and dialogue with him because he trusts Abraham. And it serves as an invitation for him to come before the Lord and discuss these matters. Or in this case, an invitation to intercede. What does that mean? To intercede for someone is to plead their case. It is what a lawyer does for his defendant. Pleads his case or her case. In the Old Testament, it was the job of the high priest. Recall our series on Hebrews uh, a couple years ago. To intercede between God and his people Israel. That was the job of the high priest. To plead their case. And Abraham is holding that office right now. As he approaches God in verse 23. Where the text says to draw near. Which is a legal term. For approaching the judge. This is sort of the courtroom scene here. All of a sudden. It is as if Abraham is a lawyer. And he is bringing a legal plea before the judge. And what is that plea? We see it right there in verse 23. It's in the form of a question. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the entire place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And that is a rhetorical question. He knows God is just. He knows he is righteous. And there's so much happening just in this scene alone here. The first thing we notice here, just briefly, is that... We, we not only sense Abraham's concern for righteousness and for the righteous, but we also see Abraham's compassion for the unrighteous. Because who is he pleading for? Who is he interceding here for? Who is he praying for? It's not just Lot and his family. Abraham is play, praying for the place, for Sodom, for all those terrible people down there. He's praying for them. It's not as if Abraham is saying, okay, Sodom, I get it. Burn it up, Lord. But will you please spare Lot and my family? We don't, he doesn't say that. We don't, he doesn't mention Lot in this text. Instead, he pleads for the city, for the place. That is a compassionate priest interceding for the people. Abraham cares enough for the wicked to pray for them. That is important enough for us to notice. The second thing we also notice here, though, is this exchange between Abraham and God in the picture Uh, which is a picture of their friendship. Remember, God has invited Abraham in. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And so while there is tension in the dialogue following, God is not annoyed with Abraham and his request. In fact, he invites it. And that, friends, is a picture of God that many of us do not hold today. And it is worth our time to highlight that as well. God as friend here. Abraham is the only person in Scripture who gets that title, the friend of God. And we see that going on here in this text. So this scene has a ton going, uh, going for it, a lot going on here. And it shows the incredible compassion on the part of Abraham. And it pictures a friendship that God desires with his people. And as Abraham approaches God, he is basically asking, will a just God, will a just God allow the wicked to determine the outcome of the righteous? Will the guilty determine the outcome of the innocent? In other words, he's saying, God, I get that you are just. You love the law. You love righteousness. I'm not arguing that. But will you punish the the righteous innocent along with the guilty wicked? And my guess is, like Abraham, perhaps you maybe have asked a similar question 
to God or to others in that way? You know, in, in punishing one group for their wickedness, their wrongdoing, does God not favor those who are good? Does he not favor those who try, you know, who, who do the best they can? And oftentimes we couch that question, this idea of God and the phrase, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Does God show no partiality, we might say? And of course, what that question begs is, what do we mean by good? Who is good? We remember that Jesus is confronted with this very question in Luke 18 when a ruler comes and asks him what he must do to inherit eternal, eternal life. And as he asks him that question, he calls Jesus good teacher. And it's the first thing Jesus addresses in that little story, isn't it? Why do you call me good? There is nobody good but God alone. King David will write in Psalm 14, which we actually just read, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Yikes. Paul in Romans 3 picks up on this psalm as we read in our confession, I believe, making the case that none are righteous or innocent or good. No one seeks God in his own volition. Therefore, we need the righteousness of another. This is where Paul goes with it. But Ezekiel 16, we're going to come back to Ezekiel 16. I want to encourage you all to go home and read Ezekiel 16 because it's more pertinent to our story in Genesis. Remember I told you last week, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't just kind of go away. It comes, it travels through the entire canon of Scripture. And in Ezekiel 16, he will say that Sodom and her daughters have not come close to the wrong that Israel has done. (laughs) This is the same Sodom that we just saw get annihilated with Sulfur and fire last week. And Ezekiel will say about Israel and to Israel, you, you are twice as bad as Sodom. What's the point? The Bible has some hard but honest things to say about who we really are and what our hearts are truly like. To the point that it puts all of us in the same boat, deserving something that we don't get, but also needing something that we don't deserve. And that's grace. And this is a crucial theological crossroads. I did not time this with Reformation Sunday, by the way. This is a crucial theological crossroads that we all find ourselves at at some point. Are any of us truly innocent? And if so, what makes us innocent? Is our record All we have to go on. And sure, all of us are relatively good to others, to somebody else probably. I'm sure you know who those people are too. We we know that's who we like to compare ourselves to. But others, maybe even Sodom in this case for our text, they are not the standard, are they? God is, and against that standard is how we will be judged. God's ways, not ours. And this is the dilemma that Abraham faces as he intercedes. And it's ours as well. Who is good? Who is righteous? And as Abraham intercedes, he is learning that at this point, the only thing that he can actually plead for on behalf of the wicked is the record of the righteous, the innocent, if there are any there. 
And we know how the story ends. God does not spare the city. Therefore, we are to conclude that there are none. So Abraham says, Lord, will you spare the place if there are 50? If there are 50 righteous, would you you not spare both the wicked guilty and the righteous innocent? And God, God says to Abraham, if I find Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Okay, but what if there aren't 50? And this gets us to our next point, the principle that Abraham learns as he intercedes. See, this is the, is the dilemma. Who is good? Who is righteous? Is our record all that we have to go on? And this is important because if you come in here thinking this morning that maybe my record is good enough. You know, maybe God will show me some favor because I have done the best that I can do with the cards that I was dealt. Certainly that'll be good enough. If you come in here with that record, grace will be good. But it will not be amazing. It will be like handing Bill Gates $200. So let's see what makes grace so amazing. And this gets to point number two, the principle Abraham learns as he intercedes. Look at verses 27 to 33 here. They record the rest of this intercession, this intercessory prayer between Abraham and the Lord. And Abraham, curious now that the Lord would spare, for, spare the place for 50, begins to explore how far this will go. And it could be important to know that many have asked, why did he start at 50? And it's possible that Abraham had 100 in mind because the 100, 100 people is what you needed to constitute an army, 100 men. And if you had an army, you had a city. And so it's possible that, that he, he's starting with that number to kind of think about it in terms of, of equal numbers. There are 50 righteous and there are 50 unrighteous. There are 50 innocent, there are 50 guilty. Will you spare the place? Will, will, you know, will, will the wicked prevail here? But now he moves south. And Abraham says, well, what if of those 50, they were, what if those 50 were righteous except five? And God being really good at math, did you notice that? He says, I will spare it for 45. I will spare it for 45. And it's at this point that Abraham begins to see something, right? God has said that he will favor the righteous over the unrighteous, that there were 50 or half. But could God favor the righteous of a few over the unrighteous many? See, before Abraham wanted to know if the wicked would determine the outcome of the righteous, 50-50. He wasn't arguing, wasn't saying that the wicked didn't deserve punishment. That's not going on here at all. He was arguing, is it just to punish the righteous innocent along with the wicked guilty? But now, with God willing to spare the place for 45, Abraham sees that maybe the reverse could be true. And what is the reverse? God could favor the righteousness so much. He could favor righteousness so much that he'd be willing to spare all the others for it. He'd be willing to let the unrighteous many be spared by the righteous few. Do you see that? It's a covering. The righteous few would cover the unrighteous many. And God says, yes, I'll favor the righteousness of 45 over the unrighteous many. And of course, we sense Abraham's uneasiness to push the question at this point, even though God has invited him to do this. It's, he's still talking to God. Even as Abraham prefaces with the question, look, who am I but dust and ashes? 
Who am I to, to come before the face of the Lord? But Abraham doesn't stop there, doesn't he? He keeps going. What about 40? Will you spare the place for 40? 30? 20? Will you spare it for 20? At this point, point, you know, our palms are getting a little sweaty. I don't know how far he's going to let this go. 10. Will you spare it for 10? And God says, yes. And then the conversation ends. And God goes his way and Abraham goes his way. And, of course, the story ending as it does, as I said, we were to assume that the Lord did not even find 10 righteous people there to spare the place. But Abraham leaves with this principle as he intercedes that God is willing to favor righteousness so much that he is willing to allow the righteous few to cover the unrighteous many. Do not miss that. This is the principle here. And it's grace in the working. He would allow the righteousness of 10 people to cover the unrighteousness of 90 or however many, however many are actually there. And it's here that the question is our record, all that we have to go on. It's here that that question is answered. No. But we've got to find somebody whose record is good enough to cover the unrighteous many. Where will we find a record to do that? And it's here that we have to leave Genesis 18 for a minute and come to the full story of Scripture that Abraham didn't have, but you, but you and I do have. And that full story, it ends with what? The righteousness of one covering the unrighteousness of the many. You and me. And his name is Jesus. The full story that has Jesus, our high priest, interceding for the many on behalf of his own record. See, back in Genesis, though, as Abraham goes from 50 to 45 to 40, 30, 20, 10, what are we expecting to happen at this point? That doesn't happen. We're expecting Abraham to go to one. What about one righteous person, God? Would you spare the whole place for one righteous? And he doesn't do it. Why doesn't he do it? Well, there's a lot of speculation about that. But here's, what's, here's what everyone agrees on. As compassionate and as good as he was as their high priest, Abraham wasn't good enough. Abraham wasn't good enough. He couldn't save Sodom. And at some point in time, perhaps he even knew that Sodom would need a better high priest. We know that. A truly righteous one whose plea, Keller writes this actually about this plea, would not only be heard, but who could execute the plea. What does that mean to execute the plea? See, Abraham cannot appeal to his own record, his own righteousness. It is as if he saw, as one pastor puts it, this pass through these impregnable mountains, but he could not walk it. He saw the way, he saw, got a glimpse of it. The principle of grace is there, that the the righteous few would cover the unrighteous many. He saw the path, and it's as if Abraham saw it, and he could not walk it. Somebody else would have to walk that. And this is where we begin to see what we truly need. Because Abraham isn't going to be able to do it. Moses isn't going to be able to do it. King David isn't going to be able to do it. And the list is going to go on. Until we get to what? That one. Until we get to that one. And this is where we begin to see what we truly need. We need someone who can plea for us, but someone who can execute that plea as well. And Jesus does both of these things. He can plead our case, and he can also execute it by appealing what? To his own perfect record. 
And here's what he says. He says, God, will you spare them if we swap places? Will you spare them if I give them my record, but I take theirs? And friends, this is what's happening at the cross. It is a done deal. You might say that this scene here in Genesis, Abraham gives us a glimpse of sort of the backroom conversation between the father and the son as to how the righteousness of one will cover the unrighteous many. And God is so pleased by the righteousness of this one that he is more than willing to allow it to cover the unrighteous many, the unrighteousness of all of us. This is what Abraham learned. But it's what you and I know in full because of the cross of Jesus. To go back to the story, what would have happened if Abraham continued? What if he would have gone from 10 to 5 to 2 to 1? What would God have said? We would expect him to say the same thing he's been saying. Yes, I will spare it for one, but it's going to have to be the right one. It's going to have to be my son. It's going to have to be Jesus. Jesus, who was perfect, who can plead our case, but he can also execute it too by what? Appealing to his own record, his own righteousness, his own innocence that nobody in here or in the past, present, or future has. Your record, thank the Lord, is not all that you have to go on this morning. You are given another record, which is what grace is, getting something you don't deserve. And you're getting a perfect record. All right, so this, this comes back to those questions earlier. What, what am I actually getting here? It's not $200, although I'm sure you'd appreciate that. You, you're getting a life you did not live. Let that sink in for a second. You're getting perfect righteousness. You're getting all the ways you want to be that you will be someday, one day, given to you. What does it cost? It costs everything. It costs everything. It will cost Jesus everything. But he's happy to do it because here's what it means. It means he gets you. That's the exchange he's after. Because he loves you. I get a life I did not live. He gets a death. That's grace. Now, what comes close to that kind of love in this life for you? God is so pleased by the righteous one, Jesus, that he is more than willing to give him up and to allow his son, his righteousness, to cover the unrighteous many. But he doesn't do it begrudgingly. And this is, this is the part I have to sit on. All right, he doesn't do it begrudgingly. God doesn't say, ah. Oh, that's asking an awful lot. I'm going to give it my son. I'm getting who now? I'm getting Ryan. Uh, well, I guess. All right. He doesn't, doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it with great joy. The cost, though great to himself, is not too great if it means he gets you. And do you know that about yourself this morning? As soon as you'll forget it when you leave here, it's true. It's true for you right now. It'll be true for you tomorrow. Do you know that about yourself? This is the dilemma and the principle that Abraham learns as he intercedes. No one is righteous but God alone. And God is willing to make us righteous by giving us a record of somebody else's, his son, Jesus. Okay, this is grace. Here it comes back to the question, what then does that do to you? We know what it does for you. It spares you. It saves you. It brings you into the family of God. It makes you sons and daughters of the king. 
What does that do to you? And see, it's at this point that we, when we get to this, we see how this is, this is the, the building blocks, if you will, grace and mercy, for the mission that God has, has for Israel. And I would argue the mission that he has for us too. Two things I want us to look at briefly, though, with the time we have left, is this. The first is this. What grace does to you, grace kills your pride. And why does it kill your pride? Again, this is going to be crucial for Israel. It kills your pride because you walk around each day. I walk around each day on the basis of another's record. I walk around each day on the basis of another, another's record. God has shown Israel through the story of Abraham and Sodom that for you to be my people, for mission to be able to have, for you to enter into the mission I have for you, your pride will have to go. You cannot look at Sodom as if you're on some sort of high tower and not see yourselves there as well. You cannot walk around looking down at the Sodoms of the world as if you are better. You're not. You've just been shown grace. Which means you too have been given something that you don't deserve. This is what he wants Israel to understand. That they walk around each day on the basis of another's record. And his name is Jesus too. This is what their faith was in. It was the anticipation that this one true high priest would finally come. And do what Abraham and Moses and David could not do. We have the fuller story though. Israel, like all of us though, will not learn this lesson. Which brings us back to Ezekiel 16. Didn't know we'd be looking at Ezekiel 16 so much today. But listen to verse 56. It's important. This is what Ezekiel says to Israel. Was not your sister Sodom... A byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. What is he saying? He's saying, you walked around Israel arrogant, pointing out the sin and the mess of Sodom as your pride made you blind to your own sin. Because that's what pride does to us. And see, if Israel's going to enter into mission, the mission of God, if their pride is up here, they're going to be blinded to their own sin. In other words, they're not going to live and operate out of grace, which is what the mission is, to go bless the nations. And it's worth us getting a little bit, you know, going deeper with that question and asking, how is our pride blinding us this morning to the sin in our own lives such that other groups, other people, have become a byword in our mouth. And I, I think the place that stands out so much to me at this point in time, and it's kind of appropriate for where we are, is the way that we deal with sin and sexual sin specifically. There are two camps. There's the heterosexual camp and there's the homosexual. And we, we, we can even divide that into the same-sex attraction camp. And the heterosexual sin is by far not as bad as the same-sex attraction sin, is it? Why? Because we rank sins. We rank sins. And that is our pride blinding us to our own sexual sin. We will always say, I might look at a little bit of pornography and think that better. Then at least I'm not over here attracted to the same sex. And we're talking about people even who are celibate. Right? We, we rank sins. This is how we do this. And that is pride blinding us to our own sin here. We have a mess of infidelity, lust, over here on the heterosexual side that we aren't even paying attention to because we're too busy looking at these terrible, awful sins of the same-sex attracted. 
This would be one example of how this works itself out in our culture today. And here is Ezekiel saying, look, they are a byword to you. Isn't that what we do? At least I'm not like them. And why are they a byword? Because of your pride. Because our pride blinds us, as Ezekiel says to to Israel, blinds us to our own sin before our own wickedness was revealed to us. We are playing a very dangerous game and we create and engage in the relativizing of sins in our culture because all it does is stoke our pride. It makes us feel better than other people. And and at that point, we are resting. And we may not even say this and know this as good Presbyterians. We are resting on our record at that point. And that is not a place that I want to be. It blinds us to our sin, which is who in this story that we're looking at. Who's blinded to their sin in this story? It's Sodom. This is exactly who Israel will become. And this is what happens to us because of our pride. But look, if we are living each day on the record of another, and we are waking up and reminding ourselves that I am living each day on the record of another, what does that do to our pride? It has to kill it. And it has to create a humility that what? Makes us fit for mission. This is the first thing. Grace kills our pride because we go each day on the record of another. Second, grace makes us more compassionate. There's a lot of these but we don't have time for all these. Grace makes us more compassionate. Look, this whole story reeks of compassion in a very confusing way. And you might be thinking about this already, this tension here of God wants Abraham and Israel to have compassion as his chosen people for others, but it doesn't spare Sodom, does it? It seems conflicting, but it's not. See, these are two separate things. And we're not even going to begin to address the first, which is God's justice, which is bound up in his infinite knowledge, wisdom, and his holiness. That is not Abraham's concern. That is not Israel's concern. And it's not your concern. How he wants us to live reflecting his character is our concern. For now, he desires compassion. Remember, what is God, what is it that God tells us in Ezekiel 18, just chapters later? God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked and none rather than he should turn from his way and live. That's what God desires. God's justice and his own is his own thing that we must trust because it's perfect. But grace and mercy are those building blocks for mission. See, you, you can run it in the opposite direction. As Abraham bartered, not barters, uh, as he intercedes there and he, and he explores this uh, idea of righteousness covering the unrighteous many. As he goes from 30 to 20 to 10, it's almost as if he wants Abraham to sort of recognize, yes, here's what I want to, want to have happen to you, but in the opposite way. What if we had one person completely transformed by the grace of God? What would that do? What if we had two? Abraham, what if we had 10? What about 20? 30? 40, 50, right? We have eight times that in this room probably. But you see what he's trying to show Abraham? What if we had that many people living in this land, transformed by the grace of God, going out and being a blessing to the nations in that way? That is the effect that grace has on us. That's what grace does to us. It is, it is the compassion that begins to well up because we recognize we have been given something we don't deserve. That's why they're the building blocks for mission. And so one of the things that this compassion does for us, as we see in this text, is that it leads us to what? To pray for the wicked. Something that you've heard before, I'm sure. Something I'm sure you've done. And I'm sure you've gotten tired of doing it. 
But we should not grow weary. We should take up the mantle as God's people, at the very least, to pray for those who would be the Sodom and Gomorrah of our own day. As Ian Duguid says in his commentary, do you intercede for your local equivalent of Sodom and Gomorrah? Or only for your close friends? And how, how pertinent is this? This close to an election period, right? Do we pray for our own Sodom and Gomorrah? Whatever that may be, do we pray for the wicked, whoever that is for you? Ultimately, that gets us praying for each other, right? We can laugh at that. Come on. The only way we're going to pray for the wicked, though, is if our pride is leveled and our compassion stoked. And that's if we enter into grace, we see how much it costs us, how much, how much it has cost, and how much we get. What is your equivalent this morning of Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you pray for them? Is a testimony to the grace that you have received. Grace is the only thing, friends, that has the ability to transform your pride, but also to stoke your compassion. This is what grace does to us because we realize we are getting something we don't deserve. We are living off of another's record. Amen to that. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning's Scripture, we thank you for the story that we read here of Abraham interceding not just for his family, but for people that we probably would not think to pray for. But that's not the type of God that you are. As we enter into praying for the wicked, may we know and recognize that we do so because we have such a wonderful, perfect high priest who never stops interceding for us. He does it permanently. And his name is Jesus, and he's your son. You've given him to us. You've given us his record May that change who we are and may that shape us and prepare us for your mission as your people. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.